following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Well, we're going to turn to the part of the service where we look at the Bible. Sandy's going to come and preach to us in a second, but before that happens, Rachel is going to come and read for us. It is Luke chapter 19, so uh, page number 1053 in the Bibles in front of you, Um, and Rachel's going to read that for us. So that's um, Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit, so that when I came back, I could have at least collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Thank you very much, Rachel. There should be a handout, which I'm hoping James has got, someone's got. There is definitely is one. Lucy's got it. And uh, please keep your Bibles open. If you haven't opened it, please open it now, because we are going to look at this quite closely. Thank you, guys. So we're nearing the end of this summer series on stories Jesus told. And one of the remarkable things we've seen is how Jesus' parables are laser-targeted at the particular audience he's talking to. Just to take one example, last week, the prodigal son, a story about a grumpy, self-righteous man who won't rejoice when his long-lost brother returns is told to the grumpy, muttering, angry Pharisees who won't rejoice when sinners come back to Jesus. Do you think he might be talking about us? They must have said to one another afterwards. 
In almost every case, the parable is an armor-busting missile aimed to penetrate the heart of the particular listener. And today, too, we need to understand exactly why Jesus is telling this parable, because there are two very similar but also very different parables. This parable, the parable of the ten minners or miners, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, and in Matthew 25, the parable of the bags of gold, very similar, but actually very different. And to be honest, until this talk today, I just kind of assumed they were more or less the same thing, because sometimes the parables are duplicated in different gospels. But when I started to look at it properly, I realized that actually the differences are absolutely crucial. Now, very helpfully here, as he quite often does, Luke tells us exactly why Jesus is telling us the parable. Look at verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. The people thought the kingdom of God was about to appear. For most of Luke's gospel from chapter 9 onwards, Jesus is resolutely heading for Jerusalem. The clock is ticking, the big showdown is coming. And Luke regularly reminds us of that. Just look across to chapter 18, verse 31. Just at the bottom of the previous page. Verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. In those three years, the disciples had seen the most amazing events in history. A mighty attack on the misery of the world. Satan overthrown, the spell of sin broken. And now Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Surely this is the climax That idea was so deeply ingrained in their brains that even after the resurrection, they couldn't begin to change it. They couldn't reprogram their thinking. And just to show you that, if you just flip over to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Acts 1, verse 6. Jesus appears after the resurrection. And it's on page 1092. And it says, verse 6, chapter 1, Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's been said there are three different theological errors in that short question. I'll leave you to work out what they are. But the short answer is no, he isn't going to restore the kingdom. There's going to be a gap. And this parable is about what we do while we're waiting. The man goes off to a distant country to have himself made king, and it's going to take him a long time to get back. What do we do while we're waiting? The parable in Matthew, the bags of gold, is about what happens on the day of judgment. So it's a different question, and that matters. How do we live now? How do we use our time rightly if you're a Christian? That's a pretty important question, isn't it? So that's the first point on the handout, the setting. He did it because people thought wrongly the kingdom was going to arrive at once. Okay, second point, the task. Now immediately we notice three differences. 
from the parable in Matthew. Matthew has three people, Luke has ten. In Matthew, they're given different amounts, five, two, and one talent. In Luke, they're all given exactly the same amount, one minna each. And thirdly, in Matthew, they're given huge amounts of money, millions of pounds is what talents represent. In Luke, much smaller amounts, about three months' wages, a few thousand pounds. So in Matthew, Jesus is saying, we're each given enormous talents of differing amounts, and much will be expected from us when he returns. Different things will be expected from different people when he returns. But in Luke, he's making a quite different point, which is that we all have the same basic task, to use the little things of this world wisely while we're waiting. They're little things compared to the great responsibilities that are to come in the future, in the world to come. So the task now is to use the master's money for his kingdom until he returns. And each and every servant will have to give an account. Put this money to work until I come back. David Brooks of the New York Times wrote a book called The Second Mountain about how to live your life wisely. And he makes the point that when we're young, we think pretty much everything we achieve is down to us. I worked hard, I took the opportunities that came along, I made my own luck, I did it by the sweat of my brow. But as we get older, we begin to realize it's not quite that simple. So much of what we do comes from what we were given. The gifts and skills that we were born with, the way our parents brought us up, the education we received, the opportunities that were fortunate enough to come our way. The fact that we were born in the 20th century or even the 21st century and not the 14th century. The fact that we live in the UK and not in North Korea. How lucky we are, how much we have received. When we're young, certainly I never really thought about it, but when we get a bit older, we begin to reflect a bit more. Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? And there's a Church of England prayer for the offering, which comes from 1 Chronicles, which says, all things come from you, and of your own do we give you. That's quite a thought, isn't it? Everything we have comes from him, and when we give things back, we're just giving him what was his already. And here, all three servants know that. Look at verse 16. The first one came and said, Sir, your minna has earned ten more. Not I've earned ten more, but your minna has earned ten more. Verse 18, the second one said, Your minna has earned five more. And the third one said, sir, here is your minna. All three know it comes from him and has to be returned to him. So to be faithful as a servant, I need to use his gifts for him, and one day he will ask me to account for that. That's quite a thought, isn't it? You know, everything you do is not primarily for yourself or your family or your employer it is primarily, first of all, for Jesus. And whether we are president of the United States 
or the Archbishop of Canterbury, or you and me, we all receive exactly the same amount, and we receive the same instructions. And that gives us great dignity, doesn't it? You can't say, I'm a nobody, I don't really matter. In God's eyes, you are as important as Elon Musk or anybody else in the world. Whether you like it or not, you have the same responsibility and the same instructions. And that gives us great dignity, doesn't it? Tomorrow morning when your alarm goes off, are you going to say, I'm saving the king today? Because we are, all of us. So that's point A of the task. Now we get on to point B, verse 13. Put this money to work until I come back. The word Jesus uses for put to work is a rare word. It's only found here in the New Testament, and it's not very much found even outside the New Testament. And I'm going to have to give you a Greek word, I'm afraid, here, and it is the word pragmatiomai. Pragmatiomai. It means to gain by trading, to do business. Obviously, we get our word pragmatic from the same root, which means something practical, something that works in the real world. The king doesn't say give it away to the poor. He says use it to do business, trade with it, put it to work, get stuck in. And Jesus' choice of that rare word is telling us something, isn't it? While he's away and we're in charge of his goods, we've got to be involved in his world. We're not meant to hide away in the Christian bubble. We don't keep our heads down in the monastery saying, has he come back yet? No, no, get out there. Get involved in the world. It's his world. Someone said, Christianity compels us onto the dance floor of the world. Christianity compels us onto the dance floor. So please uh, turn over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. And it is on page 1184. Colossians 3, verse 22. Paul's writing to slaves. Page 1184. And he says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favor, which is how we normally do work, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. And here's the, the crucial phrase, it is the Lord Christ that you're serving. That's revolutionary, isn't it? Paul's writing to slaves and he's saying you're serving the Lord of lords. And, and that completely changes our perspective on our daily work. Of course, that includes all work, whether paid or not. Looking after children is work. And if you're in any doubt on that, uh, we can arrange for some children to come and stay with you for a few days. So George Herbert wrote a famous poem and hymn entitled The Elixir on this subject. And uh, it's on the service sheet, or on the handout, rather. 
And it says this, Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that and the action fine. And I think that's a very beautiful last line. The servant makes that fine. In other words, they sweep the room incredibly carefully and well because they're doing it for Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once asked a servant girl in Victorian England what difference it made that she'd become a Christian. And she said, I now sweep under the mats. I now sweep under the mats. Doesn't matter if no one can see it, Jesus can see it. I don't know what the 21st century equivalent of sweeping under the mats for you is, but there is one. You know, do your work incredibly well because you're doing it for him. So you make the room fine, but secondly, you make the action fine. Because the action matters. It has a divine significance. It will be rewarded in eternity. It's noticed and valued by Jesus. And it makes even drudgery divine. The poem is called The Elixir, and an elixir is something that magically transforms transforms something ordinary into something wonderful. It transforms ordinary metal into gold, for instance. That's what this perspective on work does when you see it. It transforms every aspect of what you do. This is uh, Tim Keller's excellent book on work, Every Good Endeavor. And in it, he quotes a sermon by Dick Lucas about Joseph in Egypt from Genesis. And Dick Lucas says, if you go into a church and see a book on the bookstall entitled The Man God Uses or The Woman God Uses, you will assume it's about a missionary or a vicar or someone involved in spiritual stuff. But of course, in this case, the man God uses is a secular official in a pagan country. And so were Esther and Daniel, for instance. All three were officials in a pluralistic, non-believing government right outside Israel. And Dick Lucas says this, in the long term, I think being a preacher, missionary, or leading a Bible study is in many ways easier than secular work. There is a certain spiritual glamour in it, and it is clearer what you should be doing, more black and white, less grey. It is often hard to get Christians to see that God wants to use men and women, not just in ministry, but in business, in the arts, in bus driving, in medicine, in gardening, and everything else. That's quite a key point, isn't it? Much easier to be in Christian work as a Christian than being a Christian out there in the real world. And yet God wants to use his people everywhere because all of it is his world. He wants people there who know that they're serving him, they're doing it for his glory and not for themselves. So the task is not to withdraw into the Christian bubble but to use God's gifts to be involved in every aspect of his world. And that gives tremendous dignity to our work, whether it's paid or unpaid. Okay, third point, the reward. What is the reward here? Verse 16. The first one came and said, Sir, 
your minna has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. Well, I suggest to you that the key part of the reward is the first sentence of verse 17, not the second sentence. Well done, my good servant. That is the greatest reward that we can imagine. C.S. Lewis says in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, in the end, the face which is the delight or the terror of the universe must be turned on each of us with the expression with one expression or the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or denied. That face must be turned on each of us. He goes on, to be delighted in by God, to be accepted and welcomed into the heart of things, this is what we're made for. This is what we've been after all our lives. The door on which we've been knocking all our life will be opened. That's the greatest reward to hear the Lord say to us, well done, good servant, my good servant. That will satisfy our souls in a way nothing else can. Freud said, if you even ask about the meaning of life, you're already sick. But he was wrong, wasn't he? There is meaning to life, and this is it. Serving the Lord and doing it well is what we're made for. And being told that we've done it well will delight our hearts in a way nothing else does. But then the second sentence is also important. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. For the first servant, five cities. For the second Now, they were only given three months' wages, remember, a few thousand pounds. Our lives here are a small thing in relation to eternity and the responsibilities we were given there. But what we do with that small thing will produce extraordinary rewards in the world to come. Jesus is never embarrassed to talk in very practical, down-to-earth material ways about rewards in the new heaven and the new earth. Three months' salary, I'm told, on average in London, is £13,000 before tax. So the first guy who's made ten times that has made 130000 Anyone trying to buy a flat at the moment? How far would you get with 130 k Not very far. And yet, you're given... Ten cities. Think how many houses are in ten cities. It's ridiculous, crazy generosity. What we do, the little things here will produce extraordinary rewards in the world to come. And what does Jesus tell them to do with the cities? He says, take charge of them. The cities are given to serve in. The reward for good service is more service. Jesus knows that nothing will satisfy our hearts as much as serving him, and so he gives us more opportunities to do that in the future. When someone dies, we tend to say, rest in peace. Jesus says, here are ten cities to look after. And what a joy and privilege that will be. So don't waste your time here, because there will be enormous rewards 
in the world to come. The most wonderful thing, the approval of the Lord, but also responsibility and opportunities for further service. Okay, last point, the third man. In a sense, the whole parable has been building up to this guy. Notice that he's not an enemy. This is another difference from Matthew. There are no enemies in Matthew, but here we have verse 14. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. I suspect the enemies, Jesus calls them that at the end, are there really to be a contrast to the third guy, the third servant. You see, he's not one of them. He is a servant. He doesn't take the money and spend it on himself. He keeps it safe. Here is your minna. But of course, that's not enough. Jesus calls him a wicked servant in verse 22. And we don't hear what happens to him, unlike the enemies who are killed, but clearly he's in trouble. Verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Well, is that true? Is the king a hard man? I mean, actually, we've seen he's incredibly generous. And he gives the first two servants extravagant rewards. But even with this third guy, he doesn't ask much at all, does he? If that's what you thought, I'm judging you by your own words, Jesus says, then you should have taken my money and put it on deposit. That's not hard, is it? Anyone can do that. I'm not asking too much. You could easily have got away with doing very little, but you had to do something. You cannot just sit on the fence, hide the mineral away in your sock, and try to stay neutral. To refuse to make a choice is to make a choice, and it is to be unfaithful. When I think about my friends who are not Christians... I would say almost none of them are out-and-out out atheists. There are very few Richard Dawkins out there. They're not enemies who say, we do not want this man to be king over us. Most of them think there's a God. They think the universe is not an accident. They think there's probably some sort of life after death, maybe even a judgment. They're quite pro-church. Maybe they go occasionally. They probably have their children baptized. They love carol services and they think of themselves as open to God. But the point is they never make a decision. They never commit themselves. They never risk anything. And the fact that there's a king who may come back doesn't make any difference to their lives. They hide what they've been given away in a sock and do nothing. And the problem is you can't do that about faith. You can't be neutral about faith. To trust someone, you've got to act. To learn to swim, you have to take your foot off the bottom of the swimming pool. If you never take your foot off the bottom of the pool, it is impossible to learn to swim. A small action would have been enough for this guy, but doing nothing isn't. And that's a key lesson of this parable. So maybe you're here today and you're not sure if God is real or not. 
you're attracted by Christianity, but you really just don't know if it's true. How can I move from doubt to faith, you ask? Well, I want to tell you a story from Becky Pippett's book, Out of the Salt Shaker. Becky was a Christian who worked with students, and her friend Sue was a student whose boyfriend had become a Christian. Sue was an agnostic, but she was quite impressed by the change that had happened to him. Uh, She said to Becky Pippett, I still don't believe, I'm plagued with doubts, don't ask me to pray some prayer because that would just be dishonest. So Becky had been reflecting on Jesus' emphasis about putting things into practice. So she said to Sue, say to God, or the four walls, I want to find out if Jesus is truly God, then read a bit of the Gospels every day, and if something makes sense to you, try and do it. Well, she didn't hear anything for a couple of months, and then Sue got in touch. She said, I've been reading a bit in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if someone asks for your shirt, give it to him and give him your coat as well. And for some reason, it really hit me between the eyes, and I said, I'm going to put this into practice today. I'm going to do it if I get the chance. By afternoon, she'd forgotten all about it, and she was working in the library when a guy came up and said, I haven't been given a desk, so I'm taking your desk. She said, you can't take my desk. I need it. It's the only one I've got. He said, I'm taking it anyway. And they had a huge row which disturbed the whole library. And then suddenly the verse hit her, and she thought, no, no, Lord. She said she'd always been amused by the way Jesus went for the jugular in his conversations with people, but now it wasn't so funny anymore. So they disturbed the whole library. They went to the librarian who sent them to the head of department who sent to the dean. And the dean said, what should we do? And Sue said, give him the desk. So the meeting was over. Outside the dean's office, the guy said to her, what on earth did you say that for? And she said, well, you're not going to believe this, but I'm trying to find out if God is real. And Jesus said, if someone asks for your shirt, give it to him and give him something else as well. So I'm giving you the desk, but don't push it on the something else. He said, why would Jesus say a crazy thing like that? She said, I don't know, but what I've learned is Jesus would give you a lot more than a desk if you asked him. And she said, as I said that, suddenly I knew it was true and that wall that I built around myself just fell away. And that was the moment she came to faith. You see, to discover if God is real, we have to act. We have to do something. We have to take our foot off the bottom of the swimming pool. And we have to put our money to work now. When Jesus comes back, it will be too late. You know, the tragedy of this is the man never discovers that the king is actually spectacularly generous because he never trusts him. He never acts on the instructions. So what happens to him? Verse 24. Then the king said to those standing by, take his minna away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten very unfair, isn't it, from a common sense point of view? But there's a great spiritual law here. You're either with God or you're against him. 
you either get everything or you get nothing. Verse 26. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Think, for example, about the first parable we looked at this month, the parable of the sower. What happens to the first three soils? Do they end up with a a rather disappointing yield, a bit below average? No, they end up with nothing. And what happens to the good soil? Does it get 50% more than normal, even double? That would be a good result from a common sense point of view, wouldn't it? But no, it gets a hundred times what was sown. A ridiculously extravagant result. That is the great spiritual law. Everything or nothing. You have to lose your life to save it. If you try and save it, then you will end up with nothing. Make a decision. So this parable, very different from Matthew, is about what we do while we're waiting for the king to return. He's gone to a distant country. It will take him a long time to come back. But use that time well. All of us are given the same task and the same instructions. Use his gifts for him and his kingdom in every area of your life. We long for that face which is the delight of the universe to be turned on us conferring glory inexpressible. But whatever you do, do not try to play safe. Either we will be blessed beyond our wildest dreams or we will be left with nothing, devastated because we've wasted the amazing opportunities that he gave us. We're going to sing our last song, which is There is a Redeemer. And uh, I didn't choose the song, Toby chose it, but he chose well because it talks in the chorus about leaving your spirit till the work on earth is done. That's our work. And then in the last verse it says, when I stand in glory I will see his face and there I'll serve my king forever. Wonderful more opportunities for service in the world to come. So let's stand and we'll sing together.